0: Well, you're listening to the 48 Days Radio Show, where each week we take about 48 minutes to dive into real-life questions about finding your passion, deciding what kind of life you want to live, and then finding or creating work that allows you to show up every day excited to be able to do something that is, in fact, meaningful, fulfilling, and profitable. Hey, this is where we whack in the head normal, indecision, and ambiguity welcome to the 48 days radio show well we got some fun questions a lot of good news i mean a lot of good things happening i mean we got the situation in houston going on but boy it just uh brings out the best in people in a lot of ways so we'll talk about that a little bit but here's some of the questions we want to cover well here's just a comment dan i want to give your listeners five things your wife wants to know but probably hasn't told you so we got a resource for you there Can I do outside sales on the side without telling my current employer? I would like to have a full-time ministry serving our Lord and defending my Christian faith. Somebody says, Dan, I've been struggling as an online cartoonist for nearly eight years now. And then pretty common question here. How can I narrow down my core message to the one thing I have to share with the world? Well, a lot of great fodder for our discussion today. Got good news. A lot of more questions there. Here's our poem from our buddy Cliff Feitner. This one says, When your creative well seems dry, one thing you need to try, a good look inside. Shows you've not dried. There's so much more that you can apply. Well, thank you, Cliff, for those that keep coming in, rolling in, adding them. We always have a new one for you each. Monday. Cliff's just a member of the 48 Days community and writes these poems having to do with work that apply the kind of principles we talk about here. Well, here's our quotation, and this comes from Julia Cameron. Now, most of you recognize that name. She's author of The Artist Way, her most famous book, certainly has written others, but this is what she says. A lot of what we think of it as neurosis in this country, is simply people who are unhappy because they are not using their creative resources. Ouch. So, so true. Not using your creative resources will lead to depression, irritability, sleeplessness, a a whole lot of things. So we want you to release your creative skills. Do it in ways that are meaningful. Doesn't need to be your only source of income. We don't need to go there. It can certainly be part of that. But uh, you need to have your creativity in gear or it's going to cause negative effects physically, emotionally, spiritually for sure. Well, here we got a call to action. I want you to be on a webinar that I'm doing Thursday, August. Well, Thursday, September 14th, as we're listening to this one, just so we can start the last quarter of the year right. You can find that. Just register for that. It's a free webinar. I'm going to be doing them every so often, but this one is you go to 48days.com slash 48 days webinar. Tell you a little bit more about that here in a little bit. Well, let's go to some good news. Obviously, there's been a whole lot happening in Houston. Some places, as I'm speaking here, have already gotten 52 inches of rain in a four day period. So, we know there's challenges there. Well, here's some of the things that are coming out of that. A Houston doctor braved the floodwaters in a canoe to make his way to the hospital so he could perform surgery on a teen suffering from a painful and potentially permanent condition. Dr. Steve Kimmel was at his own home in Dickerson and was it was beginning to flood. His own home was beginning to flood when he received word that a 16-year-old boy needed immediate surgery at Clear Lake Regional Medical Center. So he hopped in his car, began making his way to the hospital, was stopped by rising waters. Two volunteer firefighters with a canoe came to his aid, and the three paddled toward the hospital in the dark against heavy currents. He walked almost a mile through the last leg of the journey in waist-deep water to make it to the hospital and then perform surgery. Now get the pieces on that. His own house was flooding. So it would have made sense for him just to stay there obviously he didn't do that he drove as far as he could then got in a canoe and then walked through water waist high a mile in order to do surgery on a young man boy that's a pretty cool story well people are coming out of the woodwork people Sandra Bullock just donated a million dollars to the American Red Cross to help out you know that's cool to see people who have, have done well in what they're doing And just uh, be willing to have an open hand in times like this. There's a lot of other things. Of course, country music people are always the first to jump on board, it seems. So Chris Young, Lady Adam Bellum, and a whole lot of others are uh, donating, donated money. Uh, Chris Young already donated $100,000. Says he has friends there. So there's a lot of things like that that are popping up. The Houston Texans, of course, having their football team there in Houston have pledged a million dollars to help their city rebuild. Uh, J.J. Watts, a lot of you have seen him. He got on and he started his own fundraising campaign. He is a member of the Texans, but uh, they've already raised over a million dollars in the fundraiser that that he started. So a lot of people are very, very generous in times like this to help others out. There've been a lot of people from here in Nashville, probably from where you live as well, who have headed that way. Swift water experts headed that way. People with boats, I mean thousands of people with boats have headed that way just to see what they could do to help out. So people are willing to help in times of need like this. And it's neat to see people forget political ideologies, spiritual denominations, you know, all those kind of things kind of go by the wayside. We're all one when there's a disaster. And we need to rally together. It makes you wonder sometimes if, you know, God kind of orchestrates things to make us forget about the petty differences that are dividing us. I mean, nobody cares about what statue is up in Houston right now with the water flooding. We work together in things that matter instead of getting caught up in the, the petty things that seem seem to divide us. Well, here's a couple other good news things here before we jump into some questions 35 years ago today, Paul Newman, they introduced the first bottle of dressing. Well, you know, when he did that, he did it just as a joke with his friends. They all agreed that he should bottle and sell the fantastic olive oil and vinegar dressing that he liked to make. He was a, you know, he loved to cook. Um, he'd been gone a few years. Let's see. He died back in 2008. But anyway, the, the Newman line has continued. You can see the Paul Newman dressings and other kind of food things. Well, he he decided right out of the gate that doing it just as a joke, if it ever made any profits, it would be donated to charities 100%. Well, they've now donated over $500 million to charities. That little line has done pretty well. So the Newman's own products. I mean, what a great kind of thing to do to start something with the primary purpose being that all the profits are going to go to charities. So they've done that over $500 million. Well, there's a, there's a gentleman in Edmonds, Washington, Rick Steves, who has an online tour show, takes people around the world. He's written tour guides for parts around the world and all that has done very well success or financially. And so he started investing a few years ago in real estate, primarily apartments And what he's done is he's plowing the profits from that back into apartments that he then allows homeless people to live in. Well, that's done very, very well. It's one of those things, you know, if you understand the principle of tithing, sometimes when you give, it seems to come in faster than you can give it away. Well, this is kind of what happened has happened to Rick. In this particular example, he just gave a $4 million apartment complex has 24 units in it. He just gave it to the city, to the YMCA there so they can oversee it and have it be continued to be used primarily for young moms with kids. For a lot of them, having a place of their own allows them to be reunited with their kids. So it's that kind of thing. And you can check it out. It's um, called, what is it called? Let me think a minute here. It's called, oh, I don't see the name here. I had the name and I didn't didn't capture it. But it's a cool thing going on in Edmonds, Washington. Well, here there's a story out of um, one of the southern provinces of China where a restaurant patron was so grateful to be reunited with his $45,000 engagement ring that he came back and then paid for a whole lot of people to have food. Now, here's a guy who had shopped for an engagement ring. Now, I can't imagine Spending $45,000 for an engagement ring, but apparently he's doing pretty well in other areas, we'll assume. And he accidentally left the bag, which contained that diamond ring in it, outside of the little restaurant where he ate. Well, a couple hours later, he was horrified to discover what had happened. So he returned to the shop, only to discover that a little girl had found the bag sitting there and gave it to the manager at the store to make sure that it didn't get stolen. So here he came back. I mean, half a day later, returned to the restaurant and said, yes, you know, they did have it. They had the bag with his $45,000 engagement ring in there. Well, he went and proposed to his girlfriend. She said yes. So with the continuation of good news, he came back to celebrate and he paid for enough. (laughs) He paid enough to feed 5,000 customers, which is about the amount that this Little shop has in an entire day. That's a lot of customers. That must be a very busy shop, but a neat story rewarded his good news, shared some of the, the good news with, with others who were coming in to eat. Well, a couple of stories from Tony Robbins. Oh my gosh. Yes, they are blowing. The yard guys are right outside my window. I didn't expect them here today been a little sporadic as the grass slows down a little bit but here they come so you just heard it i'm sure they're blowing the grass away right out around my car right outside my window well that's cool tony robbins rescued a 100 year old lady who had become homeless now this is one of those things my gosh i mean she was evicted from her apartment because she couldn't pay the rent she lives in Palm Desert, California. Tony Robbins heard about it. He decided that he she was evicted, but she needed a new place to stay. She's 100 years old. Well, they found her an apartment, and so he decided to pay her rent for the next two years, $24,000. Now, I mean, that's not millions, but I mean, what an act of generosity directed specifically to a person. I mean, I like when things are done for specific people. I mean, just given to an organization, certainly a worthy idea. But, you know, it's nice when somebody takes the time to identify a particular need and solve that need directly. Now, this is the kind of thing, too. Um, Joanne and I have talked about this over the years and shared our ideas with a lot of other people. We decided many years ago that having a tax donation had no bearing on where we give. Now, let me, let me kind of explain that to you. So if we give to a church... It's tax deductible. If we give to the Red Cross, it's tax deductible. Like right now, if we give to the YMCA or United Way or whatever, it's tax deductible because those are established nonprofit organizations. What if we know a young gal who just got out of prison and she's really struggling to make things work? She's got two little kids and she doesn't have a washer, washer and dryer. And we purchase a washer and dryer, which we did not too long ago. That's not tax deductible because we gave it directly to a person. So should we not do that because we save a little bit because it's tax deductible? I mean, I hate making decisions like that. So we make decisions based on where we want to give, how we want to give, not because it's a nonprofit organization that we're going through. So this is an example. Tony Robbins just paid the rent for two years a hundred year old lady. He, a couple weeks ago, you know, I also read about a thing where he did, he was in San Francisco and heard about some nuns that were being put out of the building where they had been providing meals for people. And the landlord increased the rent 60% for the nuns who were using the building to help the homeless. Well, again, Tony heard about that, went to see them, didn't just do something long, to, he went to see him, handed him a check for $25,000 uh, with a promise that he'd make sure that they would not get evicted for the next year. He also gave him another $25,000 in advance for the following year so they could find a new place to continue the holy work that they were doing. I mean, uh, just fun, fun kind of stuff. Well, let me jump into again, I, I could go on. I mean, I love. Recognizing, acknowledging the good news in times when we hear so much negative news. I mean, we got to counter against that. We got to make sure that we're sharing, that we're both creating and sharing good news instead of the garbage that the TV stations want us to watch. Well, unfortunately, you know, we know too much about human nature. Human nature is such that we, I mean, talk about rubbernecking when you go down the freeway and there's a wreck. Wow, everybody wants to see, you know, everybody. I mean, even, I mean, if football season is starting. You know what people want to see. They want to see those horrific crashes where somebody may have just changed the direction of their life for the rest of their life. Well, that's another story. But, you know, we, we want to see in car races, you know, people want to see the wrecks. They don't want to see a clean race where everybody just they want to see the wrecks something about human nature we're drawn to those negative kind of things tv stations know that i mean they promote things that are negative that make your skin crawl because they know you'll keep watching and in doing so then they have your eyeballs for the nasty commercials that are going to run by you well anyway let's uh, we we want to do our part to to share good news i hope you enjoy that let me know what you think about the good news that we're doing here Well, here's some more good news now this comes from from phil Matson. now phil has been a client of mine friend for a long time i'll read you a little bit a little piece that he wrote with a gift that he wants to give to people he says welcome my fellow 48 days fans a few years ago dan completely rocked my world after over 20 years of pursuing and practicing optometry so he's a doctor he and his wife both he and shannon both doctors of optometry He says, after 20 years of pursuing and practicing optometry, Dan guided me to follow my passion and become a nationally certified men's marriage coach. And in just two years, I've had more joy and fulfillment helping men in their marriages than in over 20 years of optometry combined. One of the things Dan helped me discover is that I absolutely love writing and speaking about marriage, and I would be honored to share something with you. I've written a short PDF titled, Five Things Your Wife Wants You to Know But Probably Hasn't Told You. Whether your relationship is excellent or could use some work, I think you'll find it both interesting and helpful. Can I give you a copy? Well, thank you, Phil, for that. That's generous. It's a delightful piece. I've looked at it. You're going to be surprised at some of the five things your wife wants you to know. So you can go to renegadegentleman.com slash 48 days. I'll put that in a show notes so you can just click on it, but you can go to renegade gentleman.com slash 48 days incidentally just a reminder and we're really having fun with this the notes in the podcast notes now if you go to 48days.com click on a podcast you'll see the extensive notes that are done by mike at mallard creatives and they all have timestamps. so right now i'm at about 17 minutes and 48 seconds in so i talked about phil's gift there that gift is because it's time stamped, you can click right on it and you can hear me talking about it again. It goes right to the podcast audio for what you want to hear and because I talk about so many different topics here so many different questions we find that to be a really big help for people in going back where they want to hear a resource that I talked about or an example or hear me play their clip that they want to share with friends I mean all those kind of things are possible because those timestamps are actually live time stamps at this point very very cool well hey just a quick breather here before I jump into some more questions that you are listening to real life questions from people just like you and me out there living in the trenches, having fun with the work as we're figuring things out, figuring out our own direction, redirecting, realigning, getting a front end alignment when we need it. Hey, it's part of the process. You can send your questions in to at 48 dayscom Got a question here, an audio question that I want to play. This is from Nathan. Check it out.
1: Hi Dan, Nathan here. I'm a longtime fan. I have um, a question for you. I work in the training department of a Fortune 200 company, and I pushed really hard for us to get to use uh, a new vendor that I found. And uh, we have just started to use them on a pilot basis. I absolutely love them. Uh, the organization uh, likes them so far. I, I think they're really starting to love them, and and I think there's a good chance that we'll go with the big contract soon, uh, next year. Um, my question is, uh, I'm just getting so excited about them, about the vendor. I would actually like to sell contract on the side to my peers and other organizations. Um, because I, of where I sit, I, I know what they care about and I know how this product meets their individual needs. I have two concerns though. One that my company will, um, just kind of on principle say, you know, no, you can't do that. And then also the ethical side of just being above board and in all of my dealings and all that. So a couple ideas I've had is one is to um, maybe wait until we decide if we're going to go for a big contract and then also um, maybe not sell to industry uh, organizations. Um, But wondering if you have any other tips to get my organization to say, yes, that's fine. And then also make sure that I'm doing things the right way on the ethical side. So thanks, Dan.
0: All right, Nathan, thanks for your question. Let me, let me kind of give a, a real example here so we can kind of unpack this. Let's say that Let's say that Nathan works for Dave Ramsey Organization. I'm just making up details here, but just something you can kind of get your head around. So it works for the Dave Ramsey Organization. And they promote and they use as an outside vendor Infusionsoft. So Nathan gets excited about that and he thinks, wow, that's a great software program in FusionSoft, So I'm going to sell that to other companies. All right. Now, I would suspect that in Dave Ramsey's organization with 600 employees, probably 80% of them have some kind of a, a side business that they have going on. You know, a little, something on Amazon on eBay, on Etsy, you know, working on the weekends. I mean, everybody's hustling to get out of debt. So there, there's a lot of that going on. But there have to be some guidelines, and Nathan, you're wise to be addressing it as such. If you really devote a big segment of your time to doing that, it's going to draw into question your commitment to your primary employer. I think that we all have 10 to 15 hours a week in discretionary time where we can choose not to be sitting in front of the tube, and we can Choose to invest that in some kind of a side business without interfering with the quality work we ought to be doing in a 40 hour work week for our employer. So I think that's legitimate and I encourage people to do that. You know, we've talked on here a lot about being that 10% entrepreneur where you have 10 to 15 hours and how to use those 10 to 15 hours wisely so you can really ramp up a business. So I think you have the flexibility to do that. But if you're doing something that's really closely tied in with services that are used at your company, I think it's going to probably raise a red flag pretty quickly. I would suggest that you don't do that. Now, here's what you can do. So if you support an outside vendor like that, you may have a website where you provide resources on varied things. You can have an affiliate link on there. You might blog where you talk about the services provided by that vendor and you link to that and you have an affiliate link and you get commissions because you're sending people there. You can do a lot of things like that, but to actually be a physical presence where you're out making sales calls for a vendor that's used by your current employer, I think is going to get muddy real quick. That would be my suggestion Now, then the the flip side of that is if you look at this and you see this as an opportunity to really rock and roll, you know, if you see this as an opportunity to, to double your income because you can be a a sales rep for this company, you may want to look at making a total change. And if that's the case, then you bring to an end your employment and move into this new opportunity. I, I think you're wise to question the kind of mix that you're describing here. Great question. Uh, If I had the specifics, we could really unpack it, maybe make specific um, guidelines for that. But it's a question that a whole lot of people are dealing with, and I hope that helps. All right, this comes from Paul. Paul says, I wanted to thank you again for the time you took to help me with my passion. I started a new career recently, and I'm doing well. I just realized that my passion is for our Lord Jesus, and I would like to have a full-time ministry serving our Lord and defending my Christian faith. I need some help on how to put everything together. I thank God for all his blessings, Paul. All right, Paul, let's go back in history a little bit. Here's some ideas. Let's look at Jesus' disciples. How did they support their ministry? Well, it's pretty easy to see. They were fishermen, carpenters, craftsmen. I mean, the apostle Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament. He traveled all over the known part of the world to that point, you know, teaching, consulting, establishing new churches. He never asked people for donations to take care of his own living expenses. What did he do? He was a tent maker. He talks about that. He didn't want to be dependent on the people that he was trying to teach and train because he was afraid that he would just say what they want to hear if they're in fact giving him money. Gee, What a novel idea that is. How many pastors are there standing in pulpits on Sunday who know they better say what the people in the pews want to hear? They don't have the freedom to speak freely, new, controversial kind of ideas. They make it get from God. No, they better say what the people in the pews want to hear because those people are going to pay his mortgage and groceries. Well, Paul didn't do that. Paul kept himself clean from that by taking care of his own support now here's the thing when he was doing his work that he would do as a tent maker craftsman you know we're told that he worked in leather and other things he wasn't doing that just as a sideline where he has to do that you know he has to spend enough time doing that so he has the money so then he can go really do his ministry no he saw what he was doing as his real ministry as well So if he was working in the sewing shop or in the tent shop in the marketplace or in the synagogue or lecture hall or prison, those were all forms of ministry for him. Now, I think we got some really clear models there, Paul, that you can follow. So here are my suggestions. If you're a boat dealer, hook up a boat and head for Houston. If you have a pressure washing business, head for Houston. You're going to be able to help a lot of people with clean up there because you have a pressure washing business. If you're an actor, do it first class so you can send a million dollars like Sandra Bullock, to those people in need. If you're a physical therapist, see every visit as an opportunity to minister both physically and spiritually to that person. I mean, if you're a farmer, Treat the earth with respect, grow crops in ethical ways, and provide pure food for God's people. If you're an author, write books that encourage people and bring them hope. Now, look at your specific talents that you already recognize, and then find or create the work that you love. And in doing so, the world will see your faith in action. Yes, you absolutely can have a full-time ministry serving our Lord, which is what your your terms. But I think that's going to come from doing something that has value to the people and community around you. Instead of just putting yourself in a position, as you're implying, where then you're going to just ask people, to give you donations because you're doing ministry and they're just doing all those worthless things like writing books and coaching and speaking and growing crops and pressure washing. No, don't create that artificial dichotomy. So honor your passion to be in full-time ministry. Believe me, I hope that I'm in full-time ministry. If I'm not, I better check what I'm doing. Okay. Well, those, those questions just, seem to roll in every week. I I hope that's helpful in the way that I frame that and that you can use that to your advantage and move forward with confidence. Now, this comes from Robert. Robert says, I've been struggling as an online cartoonist for nearly eight years now. I haven't been as successful as I would like, and I need to find outside employment so as to make ends meet. I've been out of the traditional workforce since 2004 as both a cartoonist and a and stay-at-home father to twin girls. So he's been out of the traditional workforce and has been working as a cartoonist and stay-at-home father since 2004. So what is it? This is 2017, so we got 13 years there. All right, prior to that, I had 14 years of experience in the hospitality management and industry I now abhor. how do I overcome this 13-year gap to... S- so as to find traditional employment without retraining, I don't have the funds to pay for said retraining. I've tried selling my experience as a stay-at-home father in the resumes and cover letters I send out, but I wonder if they're being read as either flippant or as filler Any advice you could render would be welcome. Thanks for your time. Okay. A couple real quick things on this for sure. Yeah. Don't list stay-at-home dad on your resume we can go all day long at defending that and showing that as an honorable ex- expenditure of your time. You know, you may have a a wife who is a cardiologist or a brain surgeon. I mean, I've seen that happen lots of times where it just makes economic sense for the dad to be a stay at home because of the wife's earning potential. Don't try to unpack all of that in a resume. Now the other part of this is obviously you say that you were prior to that in hospitality management an industry I now abhor. So you don't want to put stay-at-home dad on your resume. You don't want to list hospitality management. So what you're going to have to do is start by identifying two or three highest areas of competence that you have and that you want to continue using. Now, I suspect you probably have plenty of skills and experience to draw from, but you don't want your resume to just be a chronological snapshot of what you've done, especially in your case. You don't want to do that. You want your resume to be a sales brochure for where you want to go. Now, you can do that. I mean, you you can do that. I'm confident you've got enough things that you described in your short overview here. I mean, in that position in hospitality management, I mean, what was it that you were really good at? Was it in developing leaders? was it in customer service? What is it? Was it in budget projections, data input? I mean, there are a lot of things you could break out subgroups of hospitality management, things that, you know, you really enjoy doing and list those. So you want to do a functional resume rather than a chronological resume. Incidentally, you know, I talked about our, our webinar coming up and golly, you need to be on that webinar Golly, let me grab again. I forgot what the URL is. Let me go back up here and I'll find that for you. It's 48days.com slash 48 webinar. So 48 days webinar after 48days.com. But by all means, be on it because I talk about this, how to write an objective. Well, how to not write an objective in the way that most people do. How to write a skills summary and how to do that in a way that makes you a top candidate. That's the kind of thing that you want to do. Now, here's what concerns me though, more than anything, Robert, about your question is that you say you've been struggling as an online cartoonist for nearly eight years now. If you've been getting by in any means as an online cartoonist, I wonder how close you are to a success that would allow that to really stand on its own. Now, a lot of times people think, now I know I've been guilty of this, where I think, well, you know, the creativity, those uh, spurts of writing that I do that seem to be really inspired, you know, they're just going to find me. They're going to surprise me. They're going to just kind of crowd themselves in around my very busy schedule. Well, you know what? I think my very busy schedule prevents that creativity from showing up a lot. I got to be realistic about that. I did recently, I went back and looked at some of the great people in history whose work we recognize and looked at some of their daily practices. And they weren't just wild and crazy, unstructured kind of people. They were people who recognized their creativity and they created an environment to nurture that creativity. I mean, Mozart, I mean, you've seen the movies, Amadeus, you know, Mozart, he was very meticulous about his schedule. He always had his hair done before six o'clock in the morning. And then from seven to nine o'clock, he would compose. No interruptions, he would compose. Beethoven got up every, early every morning. His breakfast was coffee. And he determined that there should be 60 beans per cup. He counted them out himself for a precise dose. Then he sat at his desk and worked until two o'clock. I mean, Thomas Mann, the great English writer, was always awake by eight o'clock, drank a cup of coffee with his wife, took a bath and dressed. Breakfast was at precisely 8.30 at nine o'clock. He closed the door to his study. The children were forbidden to make any noise between nine and 12 o'clock because that's when he was writing. Jonathan Edwards, theologian, spent 13 hours a day in his study, beginning at four o'clock in the morning. My gosh, I mean Stravinsky always closed the windows of, of his studio before he began composing. He was convinced he could not compose unless no one could hear him. Here's a musician and he, he created an environment where nobody could hear him. And then if he felt blocked in his creativity, he would do a headstand. He said, rest the head, clears the brain. Golly, other people, now some of you may know, well, Maya Angelou, You know, she likes to keep her house pretty. And then she says, I can't work in a pretty surrounding. So every morning she goes off to a cheap plain hotel at 630 with a dictionary, a Bible, a deck of cards and a bottle of sherry. But it's a very plain room. I've seen pictures of the inside. You can Google it and find it. She writes in a very austere environment. She structures that so it brings her creativity to life. And these are people that do this day after day after day. So you're a cartoonist, Robert. Charles Schultz drew every one of his 17,897 Peanuts comic strips totally by himself over nearly 50 years. At 8.20 every morning, he drove his kids to school. Then he returned to his drawing board. He stayed in his studio for lunch at 12 o'clock, and he always had a ham sandwich and a glass of milk, and then continued work until exactly four o'clock. Stephen King writes every day of the year, including his birthday and holidays, until he reaches his quota of 2,000 words. Now, these are people who are creatives, and they weren't just thinking, well, if it's creative and if it shows up, if I got another idea for a cartoon, you know, I'll do it if I don't, you know, the time goes by. And No, people who are creative create schedules that sometimes are extremely rigid and in doing that have their creativity enhanced now we've covered a lot of ground there with your question robert i mean i would hate to see you walk away from being an online cartoonist if that's really your passion if you've got any kind of skill in that area at all i mean right now i mean we we see I, i get a little business magazine called the week And in there, there's always a double spread of just cartoons that are political cartoons. But I mean, people have a heyday with doing just those. I mean, Dave Ramsey has a, a cousin who is a cartoonist and is known for a lot of his political satire cartoons. Well, so if you do need to get away from that, if it's time to move on, I mean, I understand that. We get coming to new seasons in our life. And if so, I think you can create a resume based on real skills that you have, but make sure you don't put things on there that work against you or pigeonhole you in something that you don't want to do. All right. This comes from Dean says, uh, greetings from Hawaii. I really appreciate your work abused your books and resources. I'm a podiatrist and have a solo practice. I've heard you mention that you've worked with other medical professionals and wonder if there's a different pattern to developing other streams of income for the medical professional. As it is now, when I don't work, no income is generated. The Lord has blessed our income. For that, I'm thankful. Additionally, I would like to develop a means of income separate or in addition to what is generated when I work in my practice. Any insight in what others in the medical field do? although I don't have a lot of other areas of interest using my professional area seems the most logical in attempting this. Thank you very much for any insight you might offer. Well, thanks for your question, Dean. Yes. You know, you, you are in that position. So many professionals are, whether it's podiatrist or brain surgeon, cardiologist, attorney, pastor, accountant, engineer. I mean, a lot of those people are paid very well for what they do when they're doing the work. But you can be paid for your intellectual expertise as well as what you can actually do with your hands as a podiatrist. In this case, yesterday, it just turns out I was working with a gentleman. His name is Mike. He's a PhD physical therapist. So he's a doctor, physical therapist. He has a brutal schedule right now He's from the Philippines, incidentally. So neighbor, neighbor of you in Hawaii there, Dean, but he's from the Philippines. He is doing a remarkable job of getting not only his PhD here in the States, in Texas, but now establishing himself as a serious physical therapist. But in doing so, he does evaluations and it requires him being in the car 10, 12 hours a day, you know, seeing people getting paid per evaluation that he does. So there's an economic model. It's working okay, but there's no leverage to that. That means if he has a flat tire in the time he's sitting by the road, he's making no income because he gets paid for doing those evaluations. So much like you're describing here and much like so many people who are professionals, especially in the medical field. That's why I pause because it's especially true for people in the medical field. They know what it is they do. I mean, I know people, I know, I know a guy who's a uh, pediatric dentist and the same thing. I mean, golly, he's got three little boys. They're starting to play soccer. He'd love to go to the games, but if he goes to the games, his income stops. I mean, how do you get around that? Well, with Mike, the PhD physical therapist, he's already got in motion some ideas. And of course I'm coaching him on how to develop those. He joined our coaching mastery program, but what we're going to do, he's already started. He's already framed a business where he's going to do staffing referrals for physical therapists. So um, retirement center or rehabilitation center can let him know that they have these needs And then he has a staff of physical therapists lining up. Now, at this point, he's only got about six or seven lined up, but he can fill that quickly and then match them up with the need out there where they bill the insurance company at $120 an hour and the physical therapist gets paid 60. So he's got nice margins in there exactly a keystone markup. So he gets $60 margin in there to handle the administrative part of that. Well, that'll scale nicely. I mean, that's going to be a really cool thing that he's doing. Now, another thing that he's doing is positioning himself as a coach for physical therapists, because there's so many of them who are frustrated with the way that it works. Their productivity standards, you know, they get paid by the number of people that they see. And it's kind of, uh, in some settings they get paid more by seeing more people and in some settings they get paid more by extending the time in which they're seeing one person so they're changing kind of standards depending on how the insurance is funding it it's kind of a whack system all the way around but it is what it is but mike is going to be coaching those people and helping them see better opportunities and also helping them see the opportunities to establish themselves independently i mean what a novel idea so Uh, Dean, I think you can do that. I think you can take your skill as a podiatrist and do the same thing you know, look at models like that. You can make a list of 20 things. Now, what I mentioned here that we're doing with Mike are just a couple examples. I mean, obviously you could do that where you could have other podiatrists who were available to fill in. So you may have a a female podiatrist who doesn't want to work full time because she has small kids, but she'd like to work, you know, 20 hours a week. And so you can have fill in spots where a person like that is needed on a temp situation. You know, so you could be that person, and certainly you could be a coach for other frustrated podiatrists, helping them see other opportunities for things they can do, or even transition plans where they can move out of that. I mean, I know I've worked with a lot of dentists over the years who have moved out of dentistry and other kind of things. I mean, you could write a book about moving out of podiatry. There's a uh, a gal who wrote a book, uh, "Running from the Law," and it's specifically written for attorneys who want to get out of the legal profession. Running from the law, so there's a lot of applications. You can go through what we do here in event diagram. You can do seminars, workshops, have um, affiliate links for other kind of products or services or events. You know, you can do the coaching referrals. I mean, a lot of things you can build around that. And you're right, start with the professional area that you're familiar with, build around that. And again, for those of you listening who have other areas of expertise, you can do the same thing. Do that exact same thing with what you know about. Start with that to see expanded areas of opportunity. It's it's typically not, you know, I see a lot of people who lead the medical profession, you know, and they buy a franchise with, you know, a transmission franchise when they don't know how to release a hood in a car. Well, that's not a good move. You move into something that, that embraces the knowledge you already have as a new opportunity. All right, a couple more here. Aaron says, Dan, I have an awesome family that's continuing to grow as my wife and I just had our fourth child. I have a varied background in military, ministry, and mental health. I've served the Army in ground and air logistics as an air traffic controller and currently as a chaplain. I've run my own companies and and love to find creative ways that my ministry and career can cooperate. My question is, even with all the training, certifications, and licensing, how can I narrow down my core message to the one thing I have to share with the world? I've read all of your books, love your message, heart and all you do. Thanks. Keep it up. Well, thanks, Aaron. I appreciate your question. Here's what you need to do. Make a list of 20 things you know you can do. You talk about there's a lot of things you have some knowledge about and things that you've done. That's a wonderful starting point. So make a list of 20 things that you know you can do. Then create a filter, knowing what you know about yourself, your skills and abilities, your personality traits, your values, dreams, and passions with those as a filter then narrow your list of 20 down to four or five, then do a little bit more research and choose one and go forward with that without second guessing yourself. Now, what, what does that mean? That means that you're going to leave behind things that you know you can do and perhaps even things that you know you would enjoy. That's okay. Okay you can't do everything well. And if you try to do too many things, you'll be a generalist and you'll diminish the success you can have in any of those areas. So yeah, make a list that includes all those things, you know, you can do that. You have certification, licensure for competency in, and all that, but then narrow it down, knowing what you know about yourself. You know, you, you could have on there getting a subway franchise. Okay. We know they're really popular, really successful, And then you look at your personality traits and you tend to be more introverted. You aren't energized by being around a lot of people. You need to cross that one off real quick. Subway, having a subway franchise, because you're going to be confronted with, you know, 780 people every day walking in the door, you know, 15 entry level employees you got to contend with. It's not a good fit for your personality style. But knowing yourself gives you the framework by which you can then make good decisions about what kind of a career business opportunity is going to fit. So go through that process. Well, Jonathan says, isn't it ironic that a library will only lend out your book for 21 days? Well, (laughs) I guess it's ironic, but uh, I'll tell you what, at this point, you know, I haven't even checked lately, but I think you can get 48 days to the work you love on um, Amazon for about nine bucks or something. I mean, my gosh, you know, please make make the big sacrifice buy it. hey, if you need it, I'll send it to you. i'll I'll make sure that you've got a copy of your own, Jonathan, so you don't have to uh, deal with the the library needing it back in twenty one days. Now, in as much as I talk about you know forty eight days to the work you love, I mean at, at the same time, we don't expect it to take you forty eight days to read the book. You know, we expect it to take, you can read the book in a week, in six days, and then make the application so you get to get the principles out of there even if uh, it's not been a full 48 days. That is kind of funny. You know, the funny thing is too, you know, I've I've gone into libraries where they have, you know, where I check and they have a waiting list. You know, eight people waiting for copies of 48 Days to the Work You Love. And I've, I've said, hey, let me go out to the car. You know, I'll bring you six copies and just give them to you. And they're like, we don't know how to do that. We can't do that. You know, that messes up our system, messes up our records. I'm like you got to be kidding me. You can't figure out a solution for that. If I, as the author, offer to give you six free copies, you can't figure out how to get them in. And I literally have had libraries refuse that because they don't know how to make it work. Well, that's when um, regulations get in the way of the real world that we ought to be dealing with out here. Well, I hope this has been helpful. Remember that uh RenegadeGentleman.com slash 48 days, five things your wife wants you to know, but probably hasn't told you. You can grab that as a free resource. You can have a full-time ministry, no matter what you do, use what you're doing as such. Another point we covered, look inward first to know what work you should do. 85% of the process of having confidence about your career direction comes from looking inward first. 15% is the application. As a professional in any area, like the podiatrist we talked with here, you can leverage your knowledge as well as your technical or clinical ability to do work that expands what you're doing now. And we got that webinar coming up, Finding Work You Love in 48 Days, scheduled for September 14th. Just go to 48days.com slash 48dayswebinar to find the link to get on the, on the list for that. Love to see you there. I'll give you an opportunity there to ask live questions. We'll have a lot of fun with that in September 14th, the next one coming up. Well, thanks for being part of this group where I know you are committed to the process of finding or creating work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Let us know your success story. Shoot me an email at askdanat48days.com. Love to share your stories about the things you're doing successfully to encourage others who are a little farther behind you in the path.